From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today, Dave Zirin, The Nation's sports editor, talks about Colin Kaepernick and the latest eruption of political debate in pro football. Also, Margot Jefferson will talk about what she calls Negroland, the world of the black elite in the 50s, the world in which she grew up. First up, Oliver Stone on his new film, Snowden. Oliver Stone makes movies that matter, like Platoon, Born on the Fourth of July, Wall Street, The People vs. Larry Flint, and one of my favorites, Nixon. Another of my favorites is Oliver Stone's Untold History of the United States. That's the 10-part video documentary, now on DVD, and a big fat book. His new film, Snowden, opens Friday, September 16th. Oliver Stone, welcome to the program. Thank you, John. Nice to talk to you again. You've directed two dozen films. How did making this one, Snowden, compare to the others? It took uh, two and a half years. It was, every film is hard in its own way. Certainly the Snowden uh, story, because it's current, it's got a lot of, uh, you know, uh, friction and there's a lot of possibilities. Things could have changed at any moment. Lawsuits as well as changes in the, in the, uh, in the, in the plot. <laughs> we're, yes. we're dealing with a... Uh, an issue that is pretty a hot potato and he was in 2014 when we were writing this uh, there were strong strong feelings for and against him I think those feelings have changed a little bit and modified and he's been dismissed to some degree from the com- national conversation by the by the presidential candidates certainly they're not talking about the surveillance state and so forth how do you make this story which is filled with detail and complexity uh, dramatic how do you keep it simple enough for a, a movie audience and uh, that was always uh, that was one of the hardest things to do was to dramatize it in a way that is understandable. And I understand that the big Hollywood studios were not enthusiastic about this project. Is that right? That's correct. Not at all. No, they uh, they passed on it. Uh, they're all part of these gigantic corporations now, and everything got kicked upstairs. And when it goes upstairs, I guess the lawyers and the shareholders, whatever they 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 said no which is sad because it's an American story about a, a, a young American man with very strong uh, convictions, and it should have been done. I, it reminded me a bit of the Born on the Fourth of July story, which I did with Ron Kovic about a, a Vietnam a, a War veteran who becomes a, a protester against that war. So, uh, no, we didn't get any luck, but we got luck in Europe uh, from Germany and France, and we... An American distribution company joined in, a small one, but a good one, called Open Road. They did last year's Spotlight. Uh, so hopefully, you know, well, they're doing a good job with us. I thought that the liberals controlled Hollywood. What what uh, happened there? That's a mythology that comes from, I don't know, the Reagan era. You know, they've been putting that out for years. It just, uh, you know, I think Hollywood is, self-censorship is very important, and I think People want to, you know, they want to make money. They want to make hits. And generally, we live in a paradigm where you have to make pro-American uh, films, uh, whether it be in war, wars that we have abroad, or you can't criticize the country for its decisions or its wars or surveillance state, and and get your product out there. That's the problem, and it's a real problem. It's hermetic because we don't see the outside world. We're not living in it. We don't understand what other people 
think and feel. And I think it's a problem in general of modern life is that we've become Americanized, sanitized. It's like how we cover our wars. You know, you never see any bodies. You never see uh, the real damage. Well, when it comes to Snowden, of course, we have Laura Poitras' film Citizen Four, which won the Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature, shot in real time while Snowden was in hiding in Hong Kong and and The Guardian and, and other papers were publishing their first stories by Glenn Greenwald about Snowden's revelations about NSA surveillance. That film had to pose a certain kind of challenge for this one since we've already seen what, quote, really happened. How did you decide to deal with the the Hong Kong story? Oh, we include it, and certainly part of the story. It's important part. Of the It's a parallel story we've created, but we're telling you what he was like uh, before. We go. Our story begins nine years before that event with his entrance into the military. So we're telling you the the the, the making of the man, his character, his relationship with his girlfriend Lindsay Mills what he went through in all his assignments abroad, whether it was Geneva, Japan, Hawaii, or Maryland, uh, we go through that and what happened in every of those places to change, to change his thinking and to become the dissident that he became. We also deal with the aftermath. And it's obviously a documentary. It's not a documentary, it's a drama. And we have actors portraying these roles, and I think we shape it as a feature film. A lot of people are confused about why Snowden ended up in Moscow. They think he went there to escape from American prosecution, and they find that ironic because Russia, of course, is not a defender of free speech or or dissent. So can you tell us why did Snowden end up in Moscow? Well, uh, essentially, it was a a strange uh, decision by the State Department to cancel his passport while he was in transit from Hong Kong. there's been much speculation about that and why they did it then, uh, as if to entrap him in, in Moscow or to potentially put the Russians in the spot. There was that speculation. He had, a, he had goodwill papers to travel on to Ecuador, and uh, he could have found asylum in South America, but uh, he never got the chance to get out of the air. He was stuck in the, at the airport in Russia for 36, almost 40 days, I believe. And then the Russians uh, gave him asylum for one year, and then now three years. The New York Times Magazine ran a cover story on you in your Snowden film. Uh, They report the production resembled a covert operation with elaborate security protocols. Tell us about that. They say the script was on air-gapped computers to prevent it from being hacked. Is that right? Oh, we went through all kinds. We tried to stay off the grid. I'm not sure that we succeeded completely. Certainly, oh, the script was, was very, uh, for us, was top secret. We wanted actors to read it in all parts of the world. We used encryption, and we used all forms of encryption, in fact, to get pieces of the script or the script itself to people. We had to put together the budget. It's, it's a complicated process, and we moved to Germany just to stay out of the way, not to get into trouble. You know, we, Not that I was expecting to be uh, surveyed closely, because I think, I am a public figure, and I think I think the NSA was smart enough to stay away from uh, any possibility of embarrassing itself. But definitely, it was, we had to be careful. And uh, you know the feeling about Snowden in this country in 2014 and 15 was certainly uh, not as 
I think it's mellowed. I think there's much better feeling. I think when the film is seen and understood, people will know more about him and understand what he's thinking. You've spent time uh, with Snowden in Moscow. You've worked with him. What's he like? I went uh, nine times. I, I think he's a very intelligent, articulate young man. I think he. What's amazing about the story is that he, you know, he followed his conscience, and his conscience told him that this, what the United States government was doing, was highly illegal. It was unconstitutional, and his his loyalty oath was to the Constitution. So he had the classic whistleblower problem of I'm doing something wrong and I don't feel good about it. And not just about uh, mass eavesdropping, but if you look into the movie, we also deal with the issue of cyber warfare, where the, our government is hacking and planting malware in other countries', um, other countries uh, systems. Let's talk for a minute about the casting. Joseph Gordon-Levitt is playing Snowden. Of course, we've watched him... Uh, since he was a, a little kid in that great TV series, Third Rock from the Sun with John Lithgow, from the trailer, it seems like a brilliant bit of casting. He's almost turned himself into Edward Snowden. I think Joe did a uh, superb job of watching him. He certainly admired him, spent time with him. I brought him over there, and uh, the performance is a, coiled, is a coiled one. I mean, it's a quiet one because that was very much the nature of uh, of Mr. Snowden. His girlfriend, on the other hand, I think Lindsay Mills brings a certain life to the film, too, because she's sort of the extrovert to his introvert. I think that's a great couple that makes for a good drama. And uh, Lindsay Mills is played by Shailene Woodley. She's the one who was the rebellious teenage daughter in The Descendants. i got to say, she was totally fantastic in that movie. Yeah, that was good. So what Edward Snowden has accomplished has been acknowledged at this point by former Attorney General Eric Holder, who said Snowden performed, quote, a public service. President Obama called for the reform of phone metadata collection, and in his speech, he said that the debate that Snowden started, quote, will make our country stronger. Uh, these reforms were were changing the drapes in the White House, as as, uh, as Snowden said. Uh, they're not. They weren't. Uh, phone reform is not enough. It's like the whole surveillance state mechanism, where you're untar- where you're where you're, you're mass surveilling everybody, everybody. That's at the issue here, and uh, it's not selected targets. This is serious, as well as the cyber warfare aspect is perhaps the most dangerous of all, and can get us involved in a new war at any moment without knowing who who started it. <laughs> and it's a strange phenomenon uh, that he, he, you know, that was his last assignment was on cyber warfare unit in Hawaii. No, this is serious, and uh, he's bringing attention to matters that concern every citizen because we're on the edge, we could be on the edge of a new war and uh, not even be consulted about it and know anything about it. Um, this is a... This is truly the case where we are now, where all kinds of accusations are being made against other countries that are saying they're hacking us, the Chinese, the Russians, this, that. But the truth is we don't know. We don't know. And, if, and, this, and a major war could start without any source, without knowing the source. And we could have been doing it. We have been hacking, as Snowden pointed out, the Chinese far deeper, far more deeply than they've been hacking us. The New York Times Magazine called your film Snowden, quote, a cross between a cyber thriller and a love story, close quote. Does that sound right to you? You have to judge for yourself. I made the movie as a dramatist. 
I walked in his shoes as much as I could. I tried to lay out his dilemmas. It's about character, what a character is, what a man does with his life, what his destiny is. I'm quite amazed at this uh, change. He, he really did something that was quite amazing. I mean, he's a kid, he, you know, at 29 years old, he took this decision that cost him his comfortable life uh, that, he, that he built well-paid girlfriend, uh, high, high position at the, uh, in the government, and yet he did what he did not for gain, not for ideological motives. He did it because it was fundamentally wrong to his belief in the Constitution. Oliver Stone's new film, Snowden, opens Friday, September 16th. Oliver, thanks for this film, and thanks for talking with us today. Okay, John, sign off. Colin Kaepernick, the quarterback for the San Francisco 49ers, started protesting racist police practices by sitting during the national anthem during preseason games. That provoked a storm of controversy. And now as the regular season starts, the stakes and the visibility and significance of his protests are much higher. For comment and analysis, we turn, of course, to Dave Zirin. He's sports editor of The Nation. He's the author of eight books on the politics of sports, most recently Brazil's Dance with the Devil, the World Cup, the Olympics, and the Fight for Democracy. He's a frequent guest on ESPN, MSNBC, and Democracy Now! And he also hosts his own weekly podcast, Edge of Sports Radio. It's on Panoply. Dave, welcome back. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So last Sunday was opening day for the NFL. How big is the NFL's opening day for the USA? Well, it's by far uh, the most popular sport in the United States. I mean, so opening day, of course, is the second most important day to the Super Bowl uh, in this year-long obsession that the United States has with football. And it's, it's worth noting that over the last 20, 30 years, a viewership for all the big pro sports, uh, basketball, baseball, hockey, have dwindled as people have been, you know, found other outlets for their time, you know, from, you know, Facebook, computers, what have you, maybe some people going outside, who knows. And it's interesting, <laughs> though, that the National Football League has actually grown in popularity, grown in viewership, grown in numbers. While every other, not just sports, but every other form of popular entertainment has seen their viewership splinter. So that's why it's so big. That's why it's so important commercially and politically. And this opening day also happened to be September 11th, the 15th anniversary of September 11th. Of course, an intense day of patriotism and flag-waving and memories of a terrible day in our history. George W. Bush, of course, was our president on September 11, 2001. Did he attend the memorial ceremonies at the World Trade Center in New York on Sunday? Oh, I think you know the answer to that one, John. Uh, no, that's not where George W. Bush was. He was in uh, Arlington, Texas, at the Dallas Cowboys opener um, against the New York Giants. He was part of the 9-11 festivities there. Uh, I've got festivities seems like such a ghoulish word, but when you think about the fact that both at the Cowboys stadium and at stadiums around the country, they would have all of this pageantry. They, they let bald eagles loose to fly around uh, the stadium. Uh, they had military warplanes flying overhead. They unfurled flags the size of small states. 
And all of this <laughs> was done uh, not just because the National Football League cares so much about September 11th, but there has been there is so much synergy, corporate synergy, political synergy, military synergy that exists between the National Football League and uh, the Pentagon and the Department of Defense. I mean, it's no coincidence that the NFL has exploded in popularity over these last 15 years since 9-11. This has been part savvy marketing by the National Football League to ally itself with our permanent state of war and part savvy marketing by the Department of Defense and the Pentagon, which has pursued partnership after partnership with the National Football League. Meanwhile, for the weeks leading up to opening day, Colin Kaepernick had been protesting against police violence against black people by sitting during the national anthem. The 15th anniversary of 9-11 must have been the toughest time imaginable for other NFL players to join him in acts of solidarity. What happened on Sunday? Well, you did have a small, committed group of NFL players who either kneeled during the anthem or they raised their fists in the style of John Carlos and Tommy Smith from 1968. But in addition to that, uh, it's reported that there are now about 70 NFL players who are in a regular text message conversation with Colin Kaepernick to discuss what can be done to make themselves more visible. And so what I thought what you saw on Sunday was really just an unprecedented challenge to the NFL's power structure. I mean, the NFL usually does not brook dissent. It does not uh, brook players sitting during the anthem or raising their fists. It does not allow for that sort of thing. I mean, the NFL doesn't allow for players to have different colored shoelaces when they take the field. I mean, they are that buttoned down. And yet here are players breaking that. And the NFL really has had to just sort of take a step back and let it happen. And that's Roger Goodell, the commissioner, but he's really the the hand puppet of the 31 NFL owners. And they've clearly made it clear to him that uh, that there should not be some big crackdown on players who dissent. And I don't think it's because NFL owners have somehow magically morphed overnight into being people who care deeply about issues of uh, police violence, Black Lives Matter, and the importance of dissent. I don't think that's it at all. Um, I think what it is is that they realize that this incredibly lucrative uh, golden goose that is the National Football League, I mean, this could essentially, I don't know about kill the golden goose, but certainly make the golden goose not so willing to lay golden eggs if they put that crackdown on the players. Because you're talking about a league that is 70% African-American, and if you look at skill positions, it's actually much higher than 70%. In other words, the, the players that people actually pay money to see. And yet, if you look in the ownership corridors, it's 0% African-American. Uh, head coaches, 17% African-American. Executives, 22% African-American. So you're talking about an imbalance at work here. But yet, it's an imbalance that is also predicated on players accepting that imbalance. And so if players want to protest... They're going to protest, and NFL owners, I think, are looking at this situation and saying, we need to handle this in a very ginger fashion. Kneeling during the national anthem, raising the fist during the national anthem. Dave, why are these black guys against the troops? 
Well, I, I, I hear the smile in your voice, John. And, um, and from the first time that Colin Kaepernick sitting during the anthem was noticed, he has made it perfectly clear that none of this has anything to do with the troops whatsoever. And that turning this into a discussion about whether or not it's disrespectful for the troops is just a way to delegitimize what it is they're doing. It's a way to take focus off it. It's a way to not speak about the fundamental message, which is the issue of police violence. And it's the issue of raising awareness about the fact that there's a gap between the values that the flag purports to represent and the actuality and lived experiences of people of color in the United States. That's what this has all been about from point one uh, for Colin Kaepernick and for people joining him. And when folks make it about the troops, what they're really trying to do is shut up these athletes. Now, I think Colin Kaepernick himself, not that some of these critics really care what he has to say, but he's had some of the best responses to this idea that it's disrespecting the troops. And one of his responses was to point out that some of the people that we've seen get brutalized on cameras uh, by the police are veterans. And he has pointed out uh, how it just abominable it is that people put on the, the military uniform, fight overseas, and then come home only to be abused by police. A lot of people, of course, have, have uh, objected to Kaepernick uh, kneeling for the national anthem. Prominent among them, Kate Upton, who tweeted, quote, this is unacceptable. You should be proud to be an American, close quote. I, I wasn't quite sure who Kate Upton was. I learned she is a supermodel who was on the cover of the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue. I guess that gives her standing to talk about sports and politics. Yeah, on, on numerous occasions, Rob Lowe as well has said that players, you know, that would be the actor Rob Lowe, um, has said that players should have just stayed in the locker room beforehand. And, you know, they're really joining sides with people like a, a pastor in Alabama who said that players should be shot who don't stand for the anthem. Uh, or just the army of, of Twitter bigots out there and white nationalists and like the resurgent uh, clan that we're seeing that's uh, and, and all frankly, the entire Trump community is united as one uh, with what Donald Trump said to Colin Kaepernick, which he effectively gave him a, uh, a go back to Africa statement where he said, if Colin Kaepernick doesn't like this country, he should find somewhere else to live. And I think, once again, it, it just shows you the double standard as far as who's allowed to trash this country and who isn't. Um, interestingly enough, a couple of things that also happened on Sunday um, in Philadelphia, uh, where fans have never been known to uh, be overly polite, um, uh, fans were uh, videotaped themselves singing the national anthem while stomping on Kaepernick's jersey. Mm. And um, in several um, uh, stadiums, uh, President Obama spoke over the Jumbotron before the event with a speech about 9-11 uh, and sacrifice and first responders. And in Philadelphia and Baltimore, um, fans booed him. And so, you know, and, and keep in mind, the fans at stadiums, first of all, are overwhelmingly white. Yeah. Uh, I mean, viewership, I could just say, is 77% white of the NFL. And when you think about how the, the expensive tickets are, and I'm also speaking as someone who's been to my share of NFL games, uh, these are largely Caucasian affairs. And so that plus, you know, the Trump criticism, it goes back to this idea of who's allowed to criticize the country. So it's completely patriotic to boo the black president of the United States, but it's outrageous for a black football player to express any dissent. Are there any uh, white players who've supported or joined in uh, these symbolic protests? 
there are female white players for the WNBA yeah. uh, who have stood with their black teammates and made what is a very common sense argument about why they are standing uh, for Black Lives Matter and against police violence. And in a lot of respects, sports makes it the most common sense argument of all because uh, part of the language of sports, part of the lexicon of sports is that a team is like a family. And so what these WNBA players have said is like, we care about our family being targeted by the police. And we care about the fact that our family is worried about this and we will stand as one with them. I mean, it's a very easy argument to make. And while we've seen white players embrace Colin Kaepernick and give verbal support to Colin Kaepernick, we haven't seen any white NFL players actually take that knee or raise that fist. And what's so interesting about that is that there's been this sort of a lo- like language on the left in recent years about white allies and the need to sort of be quiet and stand in the background and let black activists take center stage. And I think what you see here, though, is like the crying need for white athletes to take a center stage against racism, not because white people should be in the leadership of anti-racist struggle. I'm not arguing that at all, but because it would take a tremendous amount of weight, pressure and criticism off of the shoulders of the black athletes who've been leading up to this point. Uh, let's talk about history here for a minute. This is n- not the first time in the history of American sports that black players have protested racism in America. No, not not even close. And it's not the first time that um, athletes have protested the national anthem either. Uh, what makes this time different is that the athletes aren't being punished for it the way Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, the NBA player, was punished in 1996 when he was... Uh, kicked out of the league, when he was fined, when he was suspended, all because he wouldn't come out for the national anthem, even though there was no NBA rule that said anything about what players had to do during the anthem. Or you think about John Carlos and Tommy Smith, most famously, who raised their fist during the national anthem at the 68 games in Mexico City, and they were threatened with their medals being taken away, they were kicked out of the Olympic Village, and they eventually left uh, Mexico City before the Olympics were done and were pariahs um, in the Olympic and athletic community for years thereafter. This is a very different situation right now. And I spoke a little bit about it before, about it speaking to the racial imbalances between who has actual power in the NFL and who um, people are paying money to see. But it also speaks to the fact that there's a movement in the streets that uh, the people in power in the NFL are very conscious of. And there is a social media environment that allows players to really connect immediately with the people who care what they have to say. And that's very different from Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, who was isolated in his view and who in 1996 did not exactly have a large grassroots struggle around him that was looking to stand with him. One last thing on the history. Didn't Jackie Robinson write in his autobiography that he couldn't sing the anthem or salute the flag because, quote, I know that I am a black man in a white world. Yeah, he wrote, and he wrote that, it's interesting, like in 1972, at the end of his life, and said his opinion hasn't changed from 1947 when he came wow. into the league, or uh, I believe it was uh, uh, when he was born, and I believe that was 1919. So he, he gave these dates and said, in these years, 
that fundamental truth has not changed for me. And Jackie Robinson, interestingly enough, is of course also a World War II veteran. So, I mean, this idea that uh, people who are protesting the flag, particularly people of color, are somehow disrespectful to vets, uh, that's disproven by the memory of Jackie Robinson. It's all, and also it's disproven by a worldwide trending hashtag, Veterans for Kaepernick, that has come up in the last couple of weeks of vets who are taking pictures of themselves and posting them, of them sitting or kneeling during the anthem at sporting events to show like, hey, don't use this sort of like mythical vet who hates free speech and hates people of color speaking out about police brutality as some sort of tool to beat Colin Kaepernick over the head with. Dave Zirin, read him at thenation.com. Listen to his podcast, Edge of Sports Radio on Panoply. Thank you, Dave. It's always great to have you on the show. No, thank you so much, Sean. Now it's time to talk with Margot Jefferson. She's the winner of the Pulitzer Prize for Criticism for her work at the New York Times. Now she's professor of writing at the Columbia University School of the Arts. And her book, Negroland, a Memoir, won the National Book Critics Circle Award. It's out now in paperback. Margo Jefferson, welcome to the program. Please read us your definition of Negro land, the one that opens your book. It's, it's perfect. All right. Negro land is my name for a small region of Negro America, where residents were sheltered by a certain amount of privilege and plenty. Children in Negro land were warned that few Negroes enjoyed privilege or plenty, and that many whites would be glad to see them returned to indigence, deference, and subservience. Children there were taught that most other Negroes ought to be emulating us when too many of them, out of envy or ignorance, went on behaving in ways that encouraged racial prejudice. Too many Negroes, it was said, showed off the wrong things, their loud voices, their brash and garish ways, their gift for popular music and dance, for sports, rather than the humanities and science. Most white people were on the lookout, we were told, for what they called these basic racial traits. But most white people were also on the lookout for a too bold display by us of their kind of accomplishments, their privilege and plenty, when the, what they considered their racial traits. You were never to act undignified in their presence, but neither were you to act flamboyant. Marco Jefferson, reading from the opening page of her memoir, Negro Land. Uh, your book begins uh, in the 50s. Your life begins in the 50s. And your parents are sort of the definers of, of Negro Land for you. Tell us a little about your parents. Well, my father was a pediatrician and for a time the head of pediatrics at Provident Hospital, which was an all-black hospital and actually the oldest in the country. In those days, uh, hospitals uh, were almost entirely segregated in terms of their staff and in terms of their patients. My mother was um, a trained social worker, actually, and she worked in adoption before she married. Um, she took the, the route that so many middle-class women uh, of all races did uh, particularly after World War II, of you know, um, ceasing to work outside the home, you know, becoming a full-time mother, wife, and as I say, um, socialite. Because you know, again, for ladies of the bourgeoisie, um, you know, luncheons, clubs, 
kids, um, clubs for their children, clubs for themselves, um, you know, theater expeditions. All, you know, all of this was part of the life of being um, a lady. And in the world you grew up in, starting in the 50s, the word Negro was full of meaning for you. It was. Um, first off, um, you know, it, it was the, the respectable word. It was the honorific um, for those days. You know, our, our certain insults, insulting words um, remain very, very stable um, in terms of, um, terms of race. Um, but, the, you know, the, the chosen, the sanctioned terms that Negroes, black people, African Americans choose themselves vary, um, have varied always from um, decade to decade, even from century to century. So, you know, in the 19th and very early 20th century, colored was appropriate. That was succeeded by Negro, which, and this was a huge accomplishment, was cap first officially capitalized in 1947. The word was absolutely charged with meaning and import for me. You know, we were Negroes. You know, we had, um, we had a, a, cha- a challenged and charged history. Um, you know, we had a kind of, we had the burden, uh, burdens to carry, but we had, you know, um, a kind of destiny of, um, you know, moving towards equality and justice to fulfill. So, you know, it was, it was major. It was a significant, significant word, um, you know, that symbolized you were involved in very important matters and issues. You know, it could also be very playful, playful word. Oh, you know, you could just, you know, amongst ourselves, you know, it was, it was a play word. Um, but, you know, that's why I say in a way it's a tonal language word. You know, however you inflected it, it could be official, unofficial, um, you know, a game, cheeky um, and funny, or, you know, um, like I said, an honorific. I wonder what was the attitude of your parents when you were growing up in Chicago to to working-class black people in Chicago, like, for example, Michelle uh, Obama's family, the Robinsons. Her father worked for the city. He was a Democratic precinct captain. Her mother uh, was a housewife. They rented an apartment in the South Shore. I know uh, Michelle... Obama is younger than than you are, but would your family ever have crossed paths with people like the Robinsons? In certain ways, very, very possibly. And they, um, Michelle and her brother might, in theory, have been patients of my father's. Hmm. Um, for one thing, um, would we ha- would they have belonged, um, you know, to the same clubs? No, um, so they wouldn't have socialized together but you know they might certainly have crossed paths in um you know in other day you know day-to-day ways and you know would my parents my particular parents had they encountered them um you know found them you know (laughs) respectable honorable people yes but i can't pretend that the social divisions weren't absolutely there in high school you were a cheerleader. You were the cheerleading captain your senior year. Well, my senior year, yes. <laughs> it's really so embarrassing, um, you know, what a plum cheerleading was for um, so many girls. And yes, absolutely. Um, you, you, write, you write about being a cheerleader that 
you couldn't make yourself a rebel or an outsider. I, I wonder if this cheerleader thing was a miscalculation. Well, you know, when, you, when one thinks back on, your, on one's life, you know, there's always the dream of what kind of would have been, <laughs> would have been you know, ideal, that would have sort of showed what the qualities you came to value in yourself the most early on. You know, and of course I now love the idea that I would have hung out, you know, with the kids um, who were beat. You know, I think I was too much of a good girl. Um, and being, you know, a cheerleader definitely symbolizes to me, um, you know, wanting to be a good girl and wanting to be a kind of vivacious all-American girl. But so it was. Um, <laughs> so I can only be um, ironic and rueful about it. <laughs> okay. And then you went to uh, to college at Brandeis, sixty-four to sixty-eight. Really the. The high point of the 60s. Ah, and, and Amazing you, years, yeah. You write that you had, quote, the luck of being born at the right time in history, close quote. I, I know what you mean, but what, what, why don't you explain what you meant? All right. I enter high school in 1960. Um, you know, the civil rights movement is unleashing. You know, all sorts of cultural things in the culture are opening up. You know, we're seeing foreign films. <laughs> so uh, movies are getting very cold. You know, the counterculture, even in the early 60s, is just starting to kick up its heels. We've also got, you know, the, 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 la- the, the you know, beat culture. You know, the little um, throbbings of that are, are still going on. So things, things, things are happening. Um, all of that mounts and mounts. I hit college in 1964. Um, a few, you know, I think I go to a civil rights, it's still civil rights, it's um, demonstration like my first week. Um, I really encounter um, anti-war protesters. I hadn't been thinking about Vietnam at all, but when I got to college that first year, I started. The protests started mounting. Um, I can still remember the first girl, I'm going to say, we were young on my dorm floor to get our freshman year birth control pills. <laughs> so what wasn't happening, right? Uh, you know, and then by 64, 65, 66, 67, you've got black power, you've got escalating, um, you know, war protests, the all aspects of um, a counterculture you know, from free jazz, you know, to rock and roll, um, to wildly interesting movies are in full flow. And then, 69 into the 70s, the women's movement arrives. So one step at a time here, we're talking about how you, I guess we could call this how you got out of Negro land. You said black power is part of this history. How, I wonder how far you went towards the the Black Panther look. Did you have a leather jacket and an afro? I did and... not have a leather jacket, but I had a huge um, Angela Davis-like afro. Okay. Absolutely. And how did this go over with your parents? Well, it was not not their taste. Was, <laughs> uh, you know, we, we disagreed about it, but we didn't have storming arguments. That wasn't our way. We had some more fierce political arguments about black power, about, um, you know, uh, whether I remember having an argument with my father about Thurgood Marshall, I said, well, you know, for all he's done for civil rights, he supports Johnson on, on the Vietnam War, and that's absolutely intolerable. And my father said, you know, 
say what you want, what he's done for civil rights, you know, puts him beyond that kind of criticism. You know, so we would have these kinds of arguments and debates. Um, you know, as for my Afro, my mother would crack wise about it, but, you know, what could you do? There it was. <laughs> there it was. We're speaking with Margot Jefferson about her memoir, Negro Land. Uh, this, of course, was the era also of some some uh, unforgettable uh, black women, for example, Aretha, Tina Turner. W- w- did they play a role in your imagination? Well, sure. You know, Tina Turner had played a role in my and many girls' imagination since, those, since the early 60s. Mm-hmm. You know, my sister and I used to do Tina and Ike, except she was the elder and very strong-willed, and she got to be Tina, so I had to be Ike and the Ikeettes. You know, I wasn't even a teenager yet. Um, you know, Aretha, those first hits that we really paid attention to, 60s, um, huge. I was a big, big, big fan of Jimi Hendrix's. I loved him. Mm-hmm. So, you know, yeah. So a and, lot, a lot yeah, of go ahead. A, a lot of uh, black power uh, was about the black man. Where, where, where did you find women in in your young world of, of uh, black power activists? You know, I found them doing what I was doing. We were supporting, <laughs> we were supporting black power, uh, which basically meant you know, supporting men, and in that way that far precedes black power, thinking that in some way, you know, when when you're a little girl and you say, well, why does everyone, you know, why are men and women referred to as men, you know, then you're told, well, that mankind means humankind. We were doing the same thing. You know, black power, though entirely, um, you know, controlled by, by men, and with a male discourse, we nevertheless took to mean black power for all of us, you know, but when, um, when the women's movement um, hit and, you know, black women began to develop, you know, our own kind of feminism, no, that was, it. That was a different story. What's always amazing in, in, in the flow of history is what you're not aware of, you know, like women consciousness until it hits. And then suddenly you think, well, you know, I, I'm not aware of anything else. I mean, this is taking over my my consciousness. So you know, we were we were what was it? We were we were channeling our energies into this, um, it, you know, into the movement. But we weren't thinking about ourselves as women. I have to say, the most shocking revelation in your memoir, Negro Land, and I quote, is some of us were not too good for Doris Day, close quote. I have to say that e- even when I was growing up in St. Paul, Minnesota in the, in the 50s, I thought Doris Day was an embarrassment to white people. Uh, wh- well, you know, so did my sister. And by the time I got to college, so did I. Okay. But, um, you, know, so, you know, so that is rung round with irony. Um, but I was in certain ways... Um, you know, I was a girl of the Midwest, mm-hmm. and I could be perky and vivacious with the best of them. And, you know, when I see those, those Doris Day, Rock Hudson movies, I absolutely recognized, you know, certain modes of um, cheerful, playful, but always in some way um, willfully innocent um, career girlhood. Um, and I, I recognize it. I think, oh, oops, okay. That's what I was really 
playing with, the way, you know, we can take some, some cultural figure or object that in many ways is so incompatible and so embarrassing, and yet something, some, something in it, something about it, still links up with, with who we once were. You write in Negro Land that one of the foundational principles of Negro Land is you don't tell your secrets to strangers, certainly not secrets that expose error, weakness, or failure. I guess with this book, you're out of Negro Land forever. I think it's also, you know, clear. You never lose your homeland, but the the world has changed enough um, for one to... Um, write with much more, with, you know, with texture, with, with more ease, with more freedom. Um, you know, the stakes um, are still just as high, you know, for, you know, for the big things, for equality and justice, but the constrictions are by no means as extreme. The author is Margot Jefferson. The book is Negro Land, a memoir. Margot Jefferson, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you so much. We spoke with Margot Jefferson in October 2015. Her book, Negroland, a Memoir, won the National Book Critics Circle Award. It's out now in paperback. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books. Our senior producer at Start Making Sense is Alan Minsky. Our executive producer is Frank Reynolds. Our recording engineer is Ernesto Orellano. We had additional technical assistance this week from Justin Allen at Emerson College, Los Angeles. Our engagement editor is Annie Shields. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Stitcher, SoundCloud, or iTunes. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.